Yo, what up, everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the world headquarters, Sweet V Studios. I am your host, Quentin, aka Q Dog, aka Pop Tart King of the South. Listen, had an interesting week. Last week, I cut, I cut my finger with my pocket knife to the bone. Cut my finger to the bone in the middle of Target. Blood was going everywhere. My daughter was screaming. And my wife was like, what is happening? I turned my back for two seconds. Listen, listen to this, man. So help me God. So my daughter turns two in January and my son doesn't come until March. So my wife and I, we're just going to spoil this shit out of my daughter before the real world hits her. And she has to share the spotlight with the brother who we call Rowdy up until this point because we haven't really picked a name yet. So I call him Rowdy based off of Rowdy Burns off Days of Thunder. It's a solid name, honestly. I, if it was up to me, I would name the kid Rowdy. Like, I'm sort of, like, listen, I don't want anything to go wrong, but if my wife gives birth and then she immediately needs to rest and she's going to sleep for, like, eight or nine hours, I have this envisioned in my head, and the doctor comes up to me and is like, listen, or a nurse, and the nurse says, listen, uh, your wife's asleep right now, so we're going to talk to you about the birth certificate. We need to fill it out, and we're going to need a name. And my eyes light up, and I'm like, you need me to give you the name of that little baby right there? He's called Rowdy, and it gets written on. Do you think my wife would ever forgive me for that? If I secretly, legally name my son Rowdy without her knowing, I think what's right is not always popular, and what's popular is not always right. And I think his name needs to be Rowdy, but <laughs> but listen to this. So we're in Target, and my daughter sees this baby doll that she wants, but it's all strapped in with, like, thick plastic zip ties. And if you're a parent or just a human being, you know how much of a pain in the ass it is when you buy something and it's just completely locked up in plastic. Like, you know, the clamshell packaging where you get an item like, I know those old Tiger Electronics toys used to come in clamshells, but if you were to buy like a mouse for your computer, it's fully wrapped in plastic to the point where it's like, it's never supposed to come out of this, but somehow you've got to get it out. So you cut it just hoping that you don't slice your hand off or something. Well, this baby doll was similar to that, but it was strapped in with the thickest plastic zip ties. Like, I don't know what the hell Target's thinking. Like, is there some, you know, baby doll trafficking ring where people are stealing these things and selling them on eBay or something? I have no idea, but whoever built this doll... They didn't want me to get the fucking thing out. Or here's what I think it was. I think whoever packaged this doll, it was like some kid on an assembly line who was like, I'm going to put a thick fucking piece of plastic to hold this baby down. And some dumbass dad's going to come along with his pocket knife and cut himself with it. Well, I'm your huckleberry, pal, because I did that to the bone. So my daughter sees this baby doll. She wants it. And I'm like, my wife goes, oh, can you get this baby doll out? Do you have your pocket knife on you? My wife looks at me with lust in her eyes. And she says, do you have your pocket knife? I pulled out that pocket knife so quick, like Doc Holliday off Tombstone fighting Johnny Ringo. And I said, I have my pocket knife. And she goes, can you cut this doll open? The wind's blowing in her hair. I could smell her pheromones. And I said, yeah, I can cut that baby doll out. So it's got a zip tie around each hand and each foot. I cut him immediately. Doesn't take me any work at all. Baby doll still doesn't come out. It's not free from its restraints. I look, there's the thickest piece of plastic wrapped around its neck, holding it firmly in position to the box. I said, oh, I just got to get this last piece off. I try to cut it real fast. Doesn't cut. It's thick. 
and I've got an old timer pocket knife. So I'm like, well, I start sawing it because it's that thick. So I saw it and I saw it and I'm having to saw it hard, man. Like it is like vicious. And how I've got the doll, I'm holding onto the box with my left hand and I'm sawing with my right hand. And I'm so I'm sawing so hard, the box collapses. The knife goes right into the knuckle, right above the knuckle on my middle finger. I can feel it reverberate off the fucking bone when I stab myself. I pull the knife out. I stand there for a second. My wife's looking at me. I look down at my finger and I go, I mean, I think I cut myself. Meanwhile, blood is spewing out of my finger. It's like I hit a carotid artery or something. And I look at my wife and go, man, I think I cut myself. And she goes, no shit, there's blood everywhere. Cover it up. And there's blood just splattering out. It is spilling out. My daughter, she's on the ground next to a pool of blood just screaming because she doesn't have her baby doll. Meanwhile, the baby doll's on the floor absolutely covered in blood. And so I take my finger and I wrap it in my T-shirt. And I mean, it is soaking and puddling through the shirt immediately. My wife goes, let me get help. Let me get someone from Target. Maybe they have a first aid kit. I look at her dead in the eyes and I go, no. Like sort of like the the Riggs-Joshua fight off Lethal Weapon where Joshua has Riggs in a hold like he's about to choke him out. And Danny Glover looks at Riggs and he goes, let me take him, Riggs. Let me take him. And Riggs, played by Mel Gibson, looks at Danny Glover and goes, no. Well, that's what I did to my wife because she wanted to get me help in a first aid kit. I said, no, I'm a man that carries a pocket knife. I don't need someone's fancy first aid kit, and I don't use Band-Aids. Won't do it. So I wrap my finger up in my shirt, pick up my daughter with one hand while she's crying. My wife looks at me and goes, what about the bloody baby doll? I look at her and I say, hide the, hide the evidence, hide the bloody baby. So she takes it and puts it under a shelf where no one could ever find it, but there's blood all over the floor. We get the hell out of there, man. I'm sort of like Jules and Vincent Vega off Pulp Fiction. Like, I just shot a guy in the fucking head. Like, well, we got to go. And the whole time we're walking to the front of the store, at this point, we were just putting around the store. So we want to go ahead and check out. And I told my wife, let's just check out. She's like, are you fine? There's a lot of blood. The blood is puddling in my shirt. It is so deep red. It's alarming. Like, I'm sort of getting nervous at this point. And my wife is like, why don't we just ask somebody in Target if they have a first aid kit. Now listen, this is the thing, right? I am your quintessential grumpy dad, right? I will yell at my kid neighbors for playing loud music at 11.30 p.m. in my underwear with a natural light beer in my hand. That's all I know. The male role model in my life, my dad, Paul McCree, that's what he would do. My dad never went to doctors, never used a first aid kit. Listen, if I got cut up, just give me some super glue. And so my wife's looking at me and she's so confused because she doesn't get why I won't let someone from Target give me a first aid kit. And I said, I'm the type of man that carries a pocket knife and will go outside in his underwear and yell profanities at the kids. I can't, I don't want their first aid kit and I don't want their help. I'm a dad right now. I don't need anyone's help. And so she's like, okay, let's go. So I'm holding Emmy with, that's my daughter's name, Emmy, with one arm, with my right arm. And she's about 29 pounds of just solid, pure muscle right now. And so my arm is cramping up a little bit, but I was good because I had my finger wrapped up. But it's just, the blood is just running all over my shirt at this point. Like, I just cut it good. And I felt it hit the bone. Like, I did. But here's the thing. I didn't hit it on the side of my finger with all the meat. 
I hit it on the top of the finger, so it doesn't take much to get to the bone. So the whole time, I'm like, this isn't a big deal. So we get in the car, and my wife is like, listen, you, when you go to like Walgreens or CVS, you need to go to urgent care. And I was like, no. I was like, Emmy's hungry, and so am I. Let's go through the drive through at McDonald's. So listen to this shit. Instead of going to urgent care or getting a first aid kit or let alone a fucking Band-Aid, we go straight from Target, where I've almost bled out, <laughs> to the McDonald's drive-thru so I could get a fish filet and two hamburgers and my daughter could get a four-piece chicken nugget with apples. And I ate them right there in the car with one hand. I had to tell my wife, like, listen, can you open my filet of fish I won't apologize for eating the fish filet from McDonald's because it's a good sandwich. It's a damn good sandwich. Damn good sandwich. And so after we eat McDonald's, we go to the house, put my daughter to bed, and I'm like, I'm just going to super glue the cut. Because that's what you can go to the store and get liquid Band-Aid. They have that. It's like a liquid bandage. But if it's a cut, if you just put super glue on it, it'll stop bleeding. Because at this point, like my, this is to fast forward. I mean, by the time we ate McDonald's, got home, put Emmy to bed, checked out at Target, all that stuff. It had been like two and a half hours probably. Two, I would say two hours. And in two hours, the blood has not stopped flowing. I mean, it's flowing like I just cut it. And so I told my wife, I was like, listen, like I'm just going to clean it with peroxide and clean with the hydrogen peroxide and then put super glue on it. So I hold it under the sink. I'm spraying water on it from the sink, warm water. And then I'm pouring the peroxide all over it. And it's the cut. The gash was so big. Super glue would not hold it. So only at that point did I decide to go to the ER. And man, I did not want to go to the ER, but it was really funny because I walk into the ER and my shirt's <laughs> covered in blood and all the people in the ER are just looking at me. And like, these are people that probably have COVID that think they might die. And I just walk in bloody and they're like, what the fuck happened to that guy? And I walk up to the counter and they're like, what's wrong? Oh shit. And I'm like, yeah, I cut my finger. So I probably just need like some stitches or something. And they got me stitched up and all that stuff. But my wife, she will not let me live this pocket knife incident down because she looks at me. She goes, listen, man, all you needed in your life was a pocket knife. You went on and on and on about this pocket knife and you got the pocket knife and you don't know how to use it. And I said, listen, I said, Courtney, that's my wife's name. I said, listen to me right now. I bled my blood and put my life on the line for you and my daughter right now. And I said, I don't regret it. I said, whatever has to be done for this family, I'll do. And guess what? I'm going to probably cut myself with a pocket knife again. I'll probably do it like 10 more times. There's no way my life ends and I have all 10 fingers. Like, it just doesn't happen. I told my wife, jokingly at the time, I said, listen, if I somehow ever get my hand cut off, she goes, why would you ever get your hand cut off? I said, listen, if my hand ever gets cut off, can I have a hook? Because there might not be time. Because if you're going to decide between like some sort of prosthetic, a nub or a hook, they might need a quick decision. She goes, yes, you can have a hook. But now she looks at me since I've actually cut myself with a knife and she goes, listen, man, we might have to retalk this hook thing. Like, I don't know if you can have a hook. And I'm like, yeah, see, I told you. Like, there's just no way I end my life with all of my phalanges. It won't happen. And I've looked at my hand and I'm like, dude, a hand would look so cool if I only had three fingers on it. But I worry that I wouldn't be able to grip a baseball bat like I should. So like, I think I definitely need all of my fingers. We'll see. All right, before we get into our Albert Bell segment, let's take a second to talk about one of our sponsors. Today's episode of The Greatest Show on Dirt is sponsored by Red Man Chewing Tobacco. Are you stressed out at work? Are your kids screaming nonstop? 
and your boost tolerance is too high to get any immediate relief, throw in a fat hog of red, man. The strong nicotine buzz will hit you like a Mack truck within two minutes. While at work, your coworkers will immediately know you mean business when you start blasting Creedence Clearwater Revival at your desk or workstation. And when they ask for that report you didn't do last week, just spit some chaw juice on the floor and all will be well. And the kids? Hell, let them fight it out. There's peroxide in the medicine cabinet, and what doesn't kill them will make them stronger. You can even give them a little pinch of chaw right in their cheek, and they'll pass out in about five minutes from nausea, and your night will be better. Red Man Chewing Tobacco, because you don't give a shit, and the world needs to know it. All right, all right, let's get to the next segment, and this is going to be the player profile. And I've loved doing these player profiles because, you know, we get a chance, and I say we, like myself included, because it's not just, you know, anybody who listens to this podcast, Hi Mom, Hi Dad, <laughs> is that you to get to, to be able to go, a, to do a deeper dive into these ball players to find out who they really were, you know, not just what their headlines are. It's been so interesting. Like to... Let's talk about Ray Fossey, you know, about a month ago or whenever that was. Like, that was really interesting because we all sort of discover that he's just not the guy that was on the opposite end of Pete Rose's all-star game slide. There was a really gritty ball player back there who was one of the, you know, when you talk about just the ability and the duty of catching. I'm not talking about offensive statistics or anything like that. He was one of the better catchers to ever play the game. It was a gritty son of a bitch, and I think, you know, one of the reasons why we love baseball, you know, again, myself included, is, you know, the lessons it teaches us, the grittiness, you know, the hard work and the dirt of the game. And, you know, Ray Fossey epitomized a lot of that. Now, this week, I'm going to, we're going to talk about Albert Bell. And this one, to get really deep into who Albert Bell was as a person and his career numbers, it's not what I expected to find at all. I like Albert Bell. And I tend to like baseball players who are sort of, you know, go against the grain. You know, I am a fan of Barry Bonds. Um, I always like Terrell Owens. You know, I just like these ball players who just don't do what they're supposed to do and who are really good. It's sort of just like, you know, liking Scarface, right? You sort of like the bad guy. And it's like, oh, damn, like this guy's doing stuff that, you know, maybe he shouldn't be doing and he's saying stuff maybe he shouldn't be saying. But I think, you know... In one hand, we're like, I always enjoy the underdogs when it's like a World Series matchup or whatever game that I'm watching. I sort of like the bad guy in baseball sometimes because, you know, to have the bad guy in baseball like an Albert Bell or like a Barry Bonds where they go against the establishment and they're just like, I'm not going to do what you say I'm going to do and, you know, I'm going to compete how I want to compete. You know, it's sort of like Conor McGregor in MMA and that's one of the reasons why I think he's so popular or... With like professional wrestling, like Razor Ramon, like the bad guys are always so popular, is because they're just doing things like you know this anti-authority that we really enjoy. Maybe deep down, you know, we wanted to be like that when we were growing up or whatever. You know, just like the James Dean, like bad dude who's just like so damn cool, right? And you know, Albert Bell very much, yeah, I think fits that description, and he. You know, you really discover a guy here that's just a human being, you know, and he's he's a lot better than what you would think. And I would say I like him more even than what I did. That's why I was going with that. because I was I get on tangents sometimes and I forget about it, but direct to the path. I liked Albert Bell before and I like him a little more now. And 
to hear something bad about a guy, like to be like, oh, Albert Bell's an asshole. Yeah, we all know Albert Bell's a jerk, right? Like that's what we hear. But to unpack who he was as a person, you sort of get why he was the way he was. And you're sort of like, well, man, I get that. You know, me as a human being, as a father and as a husband, I'm not perfect. I am far from it. And I do things and I apologize. And we all do, you know, and it's sort of like, or if some, imagine this, like if somebody does something wrong to us and they explain, you know, sort of their situation, we understand why they did what we did. We're very much willing to be like, okay, that's fine because I make mistakes too. And like Albert Bell, like, let's just jump into it. So first and foremost, Albert Bell was a really smart guy. You know, you don't think that about guys that are very angry all the time. You know, if you're very angry all the time, you tend to think that someone that's just so pissed off all the time probably just can't figure out how to handle their emotions, and they might not be that bright. You know, they're like these cavemen guys or whatever. There wasn't Albert, though, right? Albert Bell was, you know, towards the very top of his class when he graduated high school, you know, studied French, knew French fluently in high school. He was National Honor Society guy, really good at math. Like, this is just a smart guy who always expected perfection out of himself. And he was also a hard worker. And I want to mention, you know, that he was a hard worker because it's not like Albert Bell was just this jerk that was lucky and could hit a baseball. That's not the case. Like, he was a hard worker, and that's something I can admire you know, so when he, growing up, you know, his mom, she was an educator. His dad was an educator and a football and baseball coach. And both of his parents, like his mom was the one that instilled education. And that's why he did so well, um, you know, with like grades and academics. But his dad really pushed, you know, performance and athletics. And so they had sort of the best of both worlds right in there. And Albert grew up with two parents really just caring a lot about him. And he worked hard in the sense of he would go to school, come home, go to baseball practice, right? After practice, immediately start on homework, just grind on that. Then his dad would come home because his dad was at a different high school. Like when Albert was like in junior high and high school, I don't think his dad was ever his high school coach. But when his dad would come home about eight o'clock or whatever, he would get Albert and his brother out of the room and they would go back and take BP because his old man had access to the lights on the field. And they would take batting practice at night um, with the lights on just hundreds of hundreds of balls his dad would toss him, you know. And so because of, you know, who his parents were, he he wanted perfection for himself. And that's no fault to the parents. The parents only wanted the best out of him. But Albert was so obsessive about that. He demanded perfection out of himself. And when it wasn't perfect, he would get pissed. And that's where the anger came in. You know, I think it was Omar Vizquel that said, or one of his hitting coaches or something, somebody, I've got the quote somewhere, I don't know who said it, but to get to the point, Albert Bell was the guy who could go into his last at bat and be three for three with like a double, a home run, and a single or whatever, pop out in that fourth at bat, and he's going to go to the clubhouse and start throwing shit, right? The water fountain's coming off the wall, the phones are getting broken, like if it's not nailed down, or even if it's nailed down, it's going to get ripped up and tossed, and that's who he was. And a lot of his outbursts were always directed towards the media. You know, there was one notable outburst where he ended up getting fined for it, uh, like in the mid-90s or something like that, because he really let Hannah Storm have it. And he gets to the dugout during Game 3 of the World Series. That's when it was, Game 3 of the World Series in 1995. He gets to the dugout, and the dugout's filled with media, and he's pissed off. But, like, I sort of get that. Like, I think most players 
don't really like a clubhouse or a dugout just filled with media people. And I get that. Like, they are just everywhere. But Albert, because he's got that short fuse, he just let loose and was like, everybody get the hell out of here, whatever, whatever. And part of that stems from Albert Bell taking his pregame batting practice so seriously because he wanted to be the best. And we'll get into a lot of his numbers that will tell you during his little 10-year stretch because he played technically 12 seasons, but his first two seasons were very, very small samples, like six games and 20 games. So he really played 10 full seasons. And in nine of those seasons, the last nine straight, he had like over 100 RBIs and I think over 30 home runs. It's really wild numbers, but you really find out about him was he was one of the best guys of the era that he played in. When he was on the field, he was the best hitter on the damn, he was the best hitter in the league probably. Um, really good stuff. But you, you know, part of the reason why he was like that was because he just took it so serious. He was like, you know how Pete Alonso is during the home run derby where all the other guys were like, we're having fun. But they probably really want to win, but don't say it because if they lose, they would be afraid to lose. Well, Pete Alonso is all in on the home run derby, and I love it. But Pete Alonso does it very joyfully, where Albert Bell is angry like a dad whose tools went missing or somebody turned around in his driveway at 10 p.m. at night. You know, he's fucking pissed all the time. And he he was not nice to baseball writers, members of the media, or anything like that. But he just sort of thought they were stupid. You know, he thought they asked dumb questions. He thought they were, you know, you know, somewhere where they shouldn't be and thought they just were around too much. I do think a lot of baseball players feel that way. I just don't think any of them said it in, you know, the way that Albert Bell did. But a lot of Albert Bell's blowups weren't because of him essentially just being an asshole, but him just being really angry and people saying mean stuff to him. And, you know, like, he was sort of like the opposite of Jackie Robinson. Like, Jackie Robinson, when Jackie played, it was like fans and people, like, they hated Jackie Robinson because he was a black dude playing baseball. But he he sort of was like more of a cool, cool, comma collected type. But Albert Bell, like, if you were to say something to Albert, like, he was going to kick your ass 100%. Now, a lot of the stuff with the media wasn't warranted, but there are a lot of incidents with Albert Bell that in my eyes, were warranted. Like, he was at the SEC tournament because he went to LSU for college ball, and there were these dudes in the stand, like, you know, calling him the N-word from the stands, and he chased them down through the uh, through the stands, like, tried to get to him so he could kick their ass, and he ended up getting in big trouble for that. I don't think you could find a college player, but he got suspended. Like, he got in huge trouble for that. And then also during his... He came up in, I want to say, like, 1989. Had a small cup of cop... But a small cup of coffee in 89, played like 62 games. Didn't do so well, but ended up pounding out seven home runs. Now, 1990 was intended to be his year, but he had to go to rehab in 1990. Not surprising, he went to rehab for alcohol, so he was drinking drinking his ass off. That probably had a lot to do with the anger that he couldn't figure out. And so, you know, you have rubbing alcohol for outside wounds and drinking alcohol for internal wounds. So it's obvious that... The booze that he was drinking, consuming copious amounts of, that was probably to deal with the anger. He's a 23-year-old, and he's pissed all the time. Well, give me a bottle, man. Like, who didn't do that when they were younger? Like, of course. And 
So he doesn't. He only plays nine games in 1990 because he's in rehab. Now, you probably know this, that early in Albert Bell's career, he was known as Joey Bell. So his 1990 tops card says Joey Bell on it. And I, you may have known this if you're listening, but I didn't. All of a sudden, Joey Bell became Albert Bell. And that was because when he got out of rehab, he started to go by his first name, which is Albert. His middle name's Jawan, I believe. And that was just always shortened to Joey. But when he got out of rehab, he started going by his first name, Albert, which is what his dad's name was as well. So obviously, Albert went by Joey because his dad was Albert. So that's the thing. And so that was sort of like him going by Albert was sort of just this like, I'm done with the booze. I just went through rehab. Like, let's make this happen. Well, there was one incident where he threw a fucking fastball at, I don't know, I think it was a fan or a media member. Threw a fastball from like 15 feet away at this dude's chest. Because this guy looked at Albert and goes, hey, Joey, I'm having a kegger at my house after the game. Like, that was a spit in the face. Like, I just got out of rehab, dude. And you're talk- you're making fun of me because I changed my name and I had a drinking problem. Well, fuck you, man. He threw the baseball at his chest. Right? That is a story. That when you hear that story, all anyone will ever tell you is, listen, Albert Bell's sort of been a dick. You know, he threw a baseball at a guy once. And then he, you know, beat the shit out of a guy with a ping pong paddle in a bar. But listen, you don't hear like, well, what did that person do? And I'm not saying that's an excuse for Albert doing that. But when you're 23 years old, you just got out of rehab, you're expecting perfection out of yourself and people are spitting in your face. It's like, because of what you've been through, it's sort of just like, fuck you, man, I'm going to fight you. And you know, who wouldn't do that? And it's sort of like, well, maybe a lot of people wouldn't, but Albert wasn't one of them that couldn't, right? He had to do it. But the, listen, the, the, the ping pong paddle incident was at a bar because some guy started making fun of him. It's like, hey, Joey, hey, Joey, blah, blah, blah. You know, being like, you changed your name with rehab loser. And so Albert Bell hit him in the face like twice with the ping pong paddle. I think he got in trouble for it. And that was sort of like the gist of that or whatever. And it's like, so there are incidents out there that you'll hear about that probably were warranted for somebody to get their ass kicked. Like, don't do that, man. Like, don't be a jerk. So, but. Albert with like the media and being pissed at them. Yeah, he absolutely could have handled that better. But I don't think you should be able to keep him out of the Hall of Fame because he was addicted to the media, sort of like Barry Bonds. Like, be mature about it. Like, don't be like, oh, you were mean to me. I'm not going to vote for you for the Hall of Fame. Like, be a little more mature than that. Now I realize that I'm saying that in the defense of Albert Bell, who wasn't mature in any of those instances, but be the bigger person, I guess, right? But what I want to get into is that Hall of Fame. So I've just mentioned Albert Bell and Hall of Fame in the same statement, and you're probably thinking to yourself, you're an idiot. Albert Bell's not a Hall of Famer. Now, for one, that will depend on how old you are if you automatically think he is or he isn't, I think. Like, Albert Bell's prime was probably like 92 to 99 or something like that, right? Like, I don't think, actually, hold on. Yeah, Albert Bell's last season was in 2000, which was still a good season. Uh, He had 23 homers, 103 ribbies. But it was a season that was going down, and 2000 was his last season. He had this really bad, like, genetic, uh, arthritic, like, hip condition where he just sort of couldn't walk, couldn't, damn near couldn't run, couldn't play the game of baseball anymore at the level that he was. And so he retired after the 2000 season. He just had to. He couldn't move, man. 
which sort of sucks because he was 33 years old and he was phenomenal. Two years before he retired, his last season with the White Sox, he hit 49 homers and 48 doubles. He's the only guy to do that. And he's also the only guy to have 50 homers and 50 doubles in a season, which he did in 95 with the Indians, which was uh, 52 doubles and 50 home runs. So it's like he was really, really good. And, you know, when, you know, like I was born in 1983. So if you talk about, you know, 93 to 99, like I'm in my prime baseball loving years as a kid where like, you know, my view of the game is being shaped. So I look at guys, I look at Albert Bell, sort of like I look at Fred McGriff where I'm like, this is a guy that's not in the Hall of Fame. Maybe he should be in the Hall of Fame. And he's one of those guys that I just enjoyed watching growing up. You know, I sort of put, I'm not saying statistically or, you know, performance wise, he's as good as the guys I'm about to name. But when I think of greats of the 90s and I think of Albert Bell, I think of Frank Thomas and Ken Griffey Jr., Juan Gonzalez, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Bonds, the crime dog, Will Clark, Cecil Fielder. Like these are guys that were just like, they were it. For me, right? When I'm watching baseball in this era, like these are the dudes that I love. So when you talk about their print, their mark on the game, all of the guys I named had a huge mark on the game. Cecil Fielder's not a Hall of Famer. Will Clark should be. Fred McGriff should be. Bonds, we could have a deeper conversation about. Maybe McGuire and Sosa and maybe Gonzalez. Like these are all outside of Heavy C, the big man Cecil Fielder, these are all worthy candidates for the Hall of Fame. They won't get in for other reasons. Well, Clark, I have no fucking clue. The other guy's got steroid implications on him. But the reason why I say I compare Albert Bell to Fred McGriff is because these were really good players, really good sluggers who were never tied to anabolic steroids. And, you know, one of the reasons why McGriff doesn't get in is because you look at his numbers, but like an alcoholic with a liver of steel, we've built up such a tolerance to where it's like, if I'm not drinking a full case of beer, we're not having fun. So when I look at Fred McGriff's numbers, but I've got like these steroid-induced numbers of like McGuire and Sosa and Bonds, I'm like, Fred McGriff doesn't compare to the best of the era, but McGriff did it clean, which I believe the same can be said for Albert Bell doing it clean. There have been no ties whatsoever to Albert Bell. Plus, there are so many people, there are enough people that hate Albert Bell, where if somebody knew something, you got to believe they'd say it, whether it was a strength and conditioning coach, a hitting coordinator, a clubhouse guy that happened to see a needle. It's like, buddy, you got to believe it, man. You know, Mark McGuire was universally loved in 1998 when they found the bottle of Andro in there. The same with Sammy Sosa in 98. Loved, loved, loved. Throw those guys under the bus real quick if you're taking steroids and tainting our game. Not a word about Albert Bell. Now... The things, though, that do go against Albert and the Hall of Fame and really just recognizing his greatness is him being an asshole and him only playing 10 years. Now, there is another player that only played 10 or Hold on, hold on. Let me look at this before I talk. Let's go. Basically, I'm about to bring up Sandy Koufax in this conversation. Now, before I do, don't kill me. I'm not saying that Albert Bell is the hitting equivalent of Sandy Koufax. I'm just not. But what you ran into with Sandy Koufax is an injury-riddled career that only lasted 12 years. His first two years, he only pitched 58. 
his first two years of his career at age 19 and age 20, he only pitched right at about 100 innings, which means he had 10 full really good seasons in him, right? Sandy Koufax did. And he got into the Hall of Fame because he was freaking phenomenal. I mean, his last season was in 66, so I've read what you've read, right? Sandy Koufax is all-time great. Fastball, no-hitters, perfect games, World Series, all this stuff. Just this legit, legit dude. Two-time World Series MVP, five ERA titles, three times he won the pitching triple crown. It's a legend, dude. A legend. But... You know, for you advanced data guys out there, 48.9 more. For you more traditionalists out there, 10 full seasons pitched, only 165 wins with a 276 ERA. So that's a sub three. It's phenomenal. 165 wins. Well, that's, you know, really shy of Nolan Ryan's win total. So he didn't get 300 wins, but he got in the Hall of Fame because the short, compacted career that he had was elite, phenomenal, and it made an impact on the teams that he played for. Now, Albert Bell... Had 10 full seasons as well. 40.1 war for the advanced data folks out there. That's about the same as Dave Parker. Now, one of the numbers I'm a huge fan of is OPS+. I'm not a huge advanced data guy. I like to look at war just to have fun. You know, I don't know if you guys do this, but when I'm bored, I go to baseball references and just look at numbers. Like, one of my favorite things to do is go to Barry Bonds' baseball reference and just look at his yearly totals. And then I'll do the same for like McGuire, Sosa. I'll go to Griffey, Frank Thomas. I'll go to Juan Gonzalez. I'll go to Will Clark. I love, love Will Clark's baseball reference page because it's so fucking good. The last year he played, the last season of Will Clark's career, hold on, he was the St. Louis Cardinal. I want to say Will Clark's last year in Major League Baseball, he was a trade deadline acquisition by the St. Louis Cardinals from the Baltimore Orioles. That was the year 2000. Will Clark was 36. He retires after this trade. But when Will Clark was traded to the Cardinals in 2000, he played 51 games. Guy batted 345 with 12 homers, hit the leather off the ball, and then just retires. He's done. Will Clark has a phenomenal baseball reference page that I just enjoy reading every day. But... The OPS plus number is, you know what OPS is, right? So that's uh, it's your on-base plus slugging. So that's going to tell you, like, how hard does this guy hit the ball? You know, can he hit for home runs? Can he hit for extra bases? And what's his on-base percentage like? You know, does he get on base? Like, can he take a walk? Like, that's a good thing. That'll tell you well, how disciplined is a guy. But this OPS plus number, I'm going to explain it again, but I know every time I use it, I explain it. But I sort of love to explain it is OPS Plus allows us to compare those numbers across different eras of Major League Baseball. So we could do our best to compare, like, Hank Aaron and Barry Bonds with that OPS Plus number. And it might tell you who was a better hitter for particular seasons or for overall careers, which is sort of how we know that Dick Allen is a phenomenal hitter, even though he doesn't have the counting stats because he played in a heavy pitching era where offense wasn't huge. And Dick Allen compares well to where, like, in his prime, he was as good as Willie Mays and Hank Garrett hitting a baseball, right? So those are the things we know. But I want to compare Albert Bell's. I hope I haven't called him Albert Pujols on accident yet on this podcast. But Albert Bell, we want to compare his, how good of a hitter he was compared to other dudes. And here's what we're about to do. So Albert Bell retired with a 144 OPS plus. Now, is that good or is that bad? I don't know. I can tell you it's 44% better than just your average dude because when you've got this OPS plus number and it reads 144, well, the way the equation works, if a guy's got 100, <clears throat> sorry, if a guy's got 100, he's an average hitter, man. Just run of the mill. He's an average hitter. 
So Albert Bell was like 44% better than your average dude. Now his OPS plus at 144, these are the guys it was better than. It's better than Griffey Jr., better than Dave Parker. About the same as Edgar Martinez, higher than Alex Rodriguez and Dale Murphy, barely higher than David Ortiz and Chipper Jones, higher than Reggie Jackson. Right? Those are good dudes who are Hall of Famers, should be in the Hall of Fame, or will be in the Hall of Fame. We're looking at you, David Ortiz, because you're probably getting in soon. If not, he'll be a second ballot guy. So he was as good as some of our favorite hitters that we watch, some of the best hitters that ever play the game. I mean, Reggie Jackson, Mr. October, Jesus, Chipper Jones, David Ortiz, you talk to a Braves or a Red Sox fan, that's their guy right there, man. Those are studs. Dave Parker has a huge Hall of Fame following, sort of like what Dick Allen does. Dale Murphy, I mean, everybody thinks he should be in the Hall of Fame. He's Mr. Brave right there, man. He is to Atlanta what Tony Gwynn was to San Diego, man. Just a guy, but, you know, Dale played on Braves teams when they just stunk. You know, but a two-time MVP for really shitty teams, it's a good deal. A-Rod, fucking... I know A-Rod took so many steroids and, like, failed two tests, but damn, that guy was good, man. He won a batting title, like, his second year. Like, A-Rod was a good ball player. And if Albert Bell has a higher OPS plus than A-Rod, who was one of the best hitters ever statistically that you look at, and I say statistically because there's a steroid caveat in there, which I'm not looking to have that conversation. But when I say statistically, I'm like, look at both guys' baseball reference pages. A-Rod phenomenal baseball player, one of the best ever, like 696 home runs or something. But I think Albert Bell in his compacted career had a higher OPS plus than Alex Rodriguez and about the same as Edgar Martinez. But those are legit great hitters. And so when Sandy Koufax got into the Hall of Fame, I imagine that's probably how a lot of it was. It was like, listen, this guy doesn't have the counting stats. And he had to quit his career because he got injured and just couldn't play anymore. But by God, when he played, damn it, he could play ball, man. He really could. Well, sort of the same could be said for Albert Bell, where you look at him and you're like, well, damn, he didn't play very long. But if you look at his numbers, I mean, Jesus, man, Albert Bell could really play ball, man. From 92 to 99, Albert Bell averaged 42 homers and 125 ribbies. And again, like I said earlier, Albert Bell's the only guy ever to have 50 homers and 50 doubles. And it was in 95. That was a strike shortened season, mind you. It was the year after the big strike. He had 50 homers and 52 doubles. And then like three years later, he hit 49 homers and 48 doubles. The crazy. And I guarantee he's the only guy probably to ever do that. And so you get this really well-rounded guy who can hit a baseball plus on top of that. Listen, here's something. Here is how, here's a really good way to explain Albert Bell. Albert Bell is sort of in the same vein of Gary Sheffield. Gary Sheffield is one of the greatest power hitters of all time, and he did not strike out a lot. It's weird how much power Gary Sheffield had and how much he didn't strike out. It's crazy. It's mind-boggling. Go to his baseball reference page. It's nuts. But Gary Sheffield's not going to get a lot of play in the hall because he came up on the Mitchell Report. Steroids, right? So they're going to come in and people are like, fuck, Gary Sheffield took steroids. We can't vote him in, man. Anyone in the Mitchell Report, we can't put in. Again, not a conversation I want to have now. I love Gary Sheffield. I think he's a great player. and Maybe he should be in the Hall of Fame. But Albert Bell is sort of like that. So I'm going to take you down a path right here. What if I told you 
that Albert Bell's 1998 season was better than Sammy Sosa's 1998 season. The year he had 66 home runs, the whole home run chase. If I told you that, you may not believe me, but I think I'm right. So in 1998, Sammy Sosa had... 66 home runs, 158 ribbies. He was the National League MVP. He walked 73 times, struck out 171. That was more than anybody in Major League Baseball. Had an OPS of 1024 and an OPS plus of 160, okay? Now, 66 home runs and 20 doubles. So that's 86 hits that are better than a single, but not a triple. Sammy didn't hit any triples. Albert Bell, right, in 1998, had 50 homers. Hold on, hold on. Let me make sure I get this right. In 98, oh, excuse me. 98 was his second in last year with the White Sox, Albert Bells. In 1998, he didn't hit 66 home runs. He hit 49 home runs. He didn't hit 20 doubles. He hit 48 doubles and hit two triples. That is, that's 99 extra base hits compared to 86 extra base hits on Sammy Sosa. So not just home runs included, extra base hits. Albert Bell had 99. I think I got that right, 99 extra base hits compared to 86. That's a big difference. Albert Bell also had 200 hits. I think Sosa got like one. Uh, Sosa got 198 hits. But I say that because 200 hits is a big deal. 200 hits is like batting champ territory. Um, what I think, uh, Sosa batted 308, which is fucking wild to strike out 171 times, where Albert hit like 328, 308 to 320, he hit 20 points higher, but to go back to the home runs and doubles and triples number combined, Albert Bell slugged 655, slugged 655 compared to Sammy Sosa's 647, so he slugged higher than a guy that had 66 home runs. And it's because he was more of a versatile hitter, right? He didn't just live and die by the home run. He could hit doubles. Hell, he even hit two triples. He's a power hitter. His OPS plus was 172 compared to Sammy Sosa's 160, which means he was a 12% better hitter than what Sammy Sosa was. And on top of that, compared to Sammy Sosa's 73 walks and 171 strikeouts, Albert Bell walked 81 times and struck out only 84 times. So in 1998, Albert Bell batted 328, was a way better hitter than a guy that just broke Roger Maris's record. 49 homers, 48 doubles, and nearly his walk to strikeout ratio was nearly one to one. That's crazy. For a guy to walk 81 times and strike out only 84 times and hit damn near 50 home runs is is wild, wild to me. So I bring that up as a case in point to the type of hitter Albert Bell was, right? So like Sam, that 1998 season by Sammy Sosa is revered as one of the greatest because of what he did, right? 66 home runs. He broke Roger Maris' record. But Albert Bell is over here in 1998 doing better than 
guys that are breaking Roger Maris's record, but nobody cares because he's just pissed off at the world. Sort of like Barry Bonds in 98. In 1998, that's when Barry Bonds became a 400 home run, 400 stolen base guy. But nobody gave a shit because he was sort of just like this dude with a piss poor attitude and he wasn't breaking Roger Maris's record. But I think even from a wins above replacement standpoint, Barry Bonds may have had a better season than Mark McGuire that year who had like a 212 OPS plus or something like that. Just completely crazy. So in this sense, Albert Bell is sort of comparable to Barry Bonds. Um, in a sense of like, you know, he's not out here breaking home run records and shit, but he's such a well-balanced player. It's like, but he's also like sort of a dickhead. Like nobody really talks about, you know, how good of a season that those guys had in 98. But Albert Bell's 1998 season was better than a guy who had the whole U.S. captivated along with, you know, Mark McGuire in a home run chase. And you know, so that's sort of, you know, a look into just how good of a hitter Albert Bell was in the 90s and how elite of a hitter he was. So when I make that Sandy Koufax comparison, again, I'm not saying that Albert Bell's the hitting version of Sandy Koufax because he's elite, but I'm just saying a comparison can be made because in the small window that Sandy Koufax and Albert Bell played, they were among the greatest playing in the league at the time. And I believe that's what got Koufax in the Hall of Fame. But when we talk about Albert Bell, we wouldn't even make that consideration because it's Albert Bell. I mean, he's a jerk. He chased kids down when they were TP in his house, man, which who wouldn't? I can get into that here in a second. But more consider, you know, Albert Bell and how good of a hitter he was in the 90s, how good of a hitter he was during his whole damn career, that doesn't get talked about enough, man. It's the anger stuff that the media talks about, how he did this and how he did that. But man, Albert could play some damn ball. And dare I say, he was a great hitter. He was a great hitter. absolutely believe that. All right, let's get to the next segment. This might be the last segment. I'm not really sure. We'll see where it goes. But So I meant to talk about this over the summer and just never got around to it. But did you know Major League Baseball has a draft combine? I Listen, I had no clue that MLB had a draft combine. You know what the NFL does, right? The NFL combine is like huge. But Major League Baseball combine, at first I was like, the fuck do they do it at MLB Combine, right? Like, I'm thinking in my head, like, you know, imagine, like, John Cruck and Gorman Thomas at, like, an MLB Combine, and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, man, but this Major League Baseball Combine is, like, really serious stuff, you know? It's all data-driven, a lot of it is, so with the hitters, you know, they're tracking down, like, full-on, like, exit velocity, bat speed, um max distance that you can hit a baseball and then for pitchers they're doing you know they will put pitchers through like a five minute pitching session and they'll figure out like fastball velocity you know max velocity and you know fastball spin rate and stuff like that so it's pretty interesting stuff they also do like a 30 yard dash which i think is pretty cool i guess i don't know like i know what do they run in nfl the 40 i think that was like what barry or um Bo Jackson ran like a 42940 or something like that. Like so, but in baseball they do a 30-yard dash, which I don't know what that translates to in feet. But I guess maybe they were just like, fuck it, we gotta cut this down by 10 yards, man, because we got a lot of fat kids that can hit a ball far. You know what I mean? Like, I'm thinking like in this MLB combine is for high school students, and I'm like, dude, that's what they were doing like in high school. Like when I was in high school, you know, if you're a ball player in high school, it's just like you're basically figuring out ways to get like, you know, cigarettes and chaw. You know what I mean? Like, yo, I need a little, uh, I need a little can of Grizzly and some Marlboros. Like, how can I get those? Like, that's the data I care about when I'm in high school. You know what I mean? And then 
if you're talking about like our bat speed in high school, it's just like, you know, how many mailboxes can you knock over hanging out the side of the S10? <laughs> but anyway, so what I did was, here's what this segment's going to consist of. So I thought to myself, like, what would an MLB combine look like in 1980? So I'm going to go over what the 2021 combine offers and what the 1986, what the 1986 equivalent would be of the 2021 MLB combine. Now, here's what I had. Now, first and foremost, in the uh, the 2021 combine, like I said a second ago, pitchers, they get pitchers five-minute sessions to pitch. And they're going to check uh, max speed, so how hard you can throw a baseball, you know, fastball velocity. And they're going to check your spin rate. Now, if I had to translate this drill to, you know, uh, an MLB draft combine in 1986, I would say... Our 86 combine drill would look something like this, right? <laughs> we, I'm, and I'm going to pretend I'm like the guy putting on the 86 MLB combine. So here's what this looks like, all right? Instead of five-minute pitching sessions, here in 1986, we're going to have our pitchers throw 11-inning simulated complete games because in the 80s, we don't use... We don't use the bullpen, man. You know, it's just not gonna happen. If you start a game in 1986, you better finish that fucking thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we're gonna have pitchers throw an 11 inning complete game, but there's a little kicker to it. We are gonna have, you know, we've called in Bobby Gritch, you know, because obviously you can't have a combine without professional ball players there to show the young ones what really happened. So I figure. The 1986 version of this drill would include, yes, our 11-inning simulated complete game, 180 pitch minimum, whichever comes first, <laughs> and we're going to have Bobby Gritch charge them out in the second and in the seventh inning because, well, that's just baseball in the 80s. You know, you got to throw bow ties. You got to hit people on purpose and stuff like that and just really not give a shit. And, you know, if you get a second baseman that gets plowed and if you're the pitcher, well, you got to send a message to the hitters, you know what I mean? And you might get charged on the mound. So that would be the 1980 drill. Throw your 11 innings. Bobby Gritch is going to come out to the mound and kick your ass. And the reason why I pick Bobby Gritch is because there was a pitcher named Roger Erickson. And this was when Bobby Gritch was on the Angels. And Roger Erickson, I, fuck, I have it on my Instagram so you can find it. Uh, but if not, you could just probably, honestly, if you Google search it, it comes up my Facebook profile with this video on it. But Roger Erickson, he's, uh, shit, he's a Minnesota twin and he throws a pitch and I don't even think it hits Bobby. I think it just pitches inside. So Roger throws one really far inside on Bobby and Bobby stands there for a second and he looks back at the pitcher and the umpire, and they're just sort of like not paying attention. And as soon as he sees that they're not paying attention, Bobby goes out to the mound, tries to fight Roger Erickson, and everybody, he's throwing punches like it's nobody's business. You know, Bobby's just basically trying to fight anybody in a Twins uniform that he can get. Rod Carew gets on top of him and starts rabbit punching him in the head at one point. Like, But like Bobby's just basically like, you know, just just throwing punches, just throwing punches. He's like, you know, would be awesome in the Fight Club movie with Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. Like, he's just smoking, guys. Anybody he can get, buddy, he's throwing punches. So that's why I figured Bobby Gritch would be really good at charging the mound because he was really good at charging the mound. And he was a fiery dude, man. Bobby Gritch was, man. That's a bad, that's a badass dude Gritch was. Um, so, yeah, Bobby's got to charge the mound to beat the shit out of these combine pitchers for sure. Okay, our next drill 
what do we want to go with? Oh, so for hitters, um, the 2021 Combine would have uh, max distance on a baseball. Now, I figured if this drill happened in 1986, I think all the coaches for the Combine would look at each other and just say, hey, man, you know, talking to the hitters, like, hey, hitter, hey, number 22, listen, you see that Pontiac Bonneville parked across the street over there at Coast to Coast Hardware? You think you can hit that some bitch? Think you can hit the windshield? You know, and that would be the drill, right? So basically, you would have the hitters in the box, and they would just try to smoke baseballs to, like, some car parked across the street, you know, like a Pontiac Bonneville or, like, a Pontiac 6000, maybe a Chevy S10. God, don't hit the Chevy S10. But, you know, you could go with, like, a Ford Escort or something like that and just start smoking an old car. You know, you get extra money if you hit, like, you know, the Cadillac, uh, you know, what, like a Cadillac Eldorado or something or, like, a a Cadillac DeVille, you know, if you can definitely break the windshield on a Cadillac, it's going to look good because that's what we would do, man, at the field we played at when we were kids. Like if you hit a car with a baseball, bro, that was the shit, man. So that's what we would try to do is just hit balls as far as we could. So it's just sort of like, shit, man, you see that pickup over there parked at Waffle House? Hit it, you know, and that's what the drill would look like. You know, it's just sort of like they would just pick out spots that you had to hit because in 86, you know, there weren't any like computer technology that would tell you how far you hit a baseball. So it's just sort of like, yeah, hit that thing across the street. And if you hit the Pontiac Bonneville, parked across the street over there, we'll give you a pouch of red, man, <laughs> you know, because, you know, you have to, I mean, if you're going to be a ball player, you have to have the proper supplementation, and in the 80s, you know, there weren't really, like, that many steroids or anything, Jose Canseco was probably taking steroids in 86, I don't really know, but otherwise, I think the game was basically powered by Merit cigarettes and red man chewing tobacco, so, you know, even, like, Earl Weaver, he had, I mean, cigarettes were huge, man. Everybody was smoking cigs. Dick Allen, Keith Hernandez. Like, that picture of Keith Hernandez smoking a cig in the dugout with the Mets, it's, like, iconic, man. But, you know, Earl Weaver actually had a pouch sewn to the inside of every one of his jerseys. Earl Weaver did. And he would hide a pack of cigarettes in there. But what's funny is you could see it through his jersey because a pack of cigarettes, you can't really put that under a a shirt and not see the outline of the smokes, which is pretty badass, man. Like I like the, you know, roll up in the sleeve thing, you know, <laughs> like that's buddy. Nothing says I'm cool and exquisite. Like having a pack of smokes rolled up in your shirt sleeve, you know, like a pack of cools rolled up in the sleeve. Yeah, that's what's up. But you know, you definitely, uh, that's how I think the 86 <laughs> would for sure. Look now the, which one do I want to go with next? Let's do the, um, you know, I got to believe here's what the next row would look like. So in the MLB 2021 combine, they had a 30-yard dash. That's what that looked like. Well, I imagine this drill in 1986 would translate to having runners take out the second baseman, right? You know, like I imagine it like this. If this drill existed, if we needed a speed drill in 1986, I would imagine, you know, it would be like a Hal McCray type situation where they would put a they would put a guy on first base and he would have to run to second and try to break up the double play. And Hal McCray would be there, right? You ever see a Hal McCray slide back in the day where he's like playing in the World Series and just leveling second baseman? It was vicious. Like like I'm talking MMA style knockouts. You know, Hal McCray would hit guys at second base so hard. Like, it would make the Albert Bell-Fernando Vigna hit look like two-hand touch football. Like, he demolished guys at second base. So, I would imagine if we, again, had to have a speed drill in 1986, that's what it would be like. It would be 
the take out the second baseman drill. How bad can you hurt the second baseman? You know, yeah, we got paramedics on staff over here, but they've been digging into the strows a little bit, so we don't know how quick they can actually help you. But that's what I think definitely an MLB combine in 1986 has to have to take out the second baseman drill, you know what I mean? And they would teach like different techniques, you know, like the forearm shiver, you know, drop your shoulder, you know, the spikes up slide. And then really we just might want to go with the flagrant like, buddy, I'm going to spear you like Goldberg on WCW and just go with it, you know, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if, you know, you get called for interference at second base or not. The real question is, can the second baseman breathe? You know, is he walking with a limp or without a limp? Because the goal is to get him to walk with a limp. You know, maybe you've messed up his ribs, and that way when he comes to the plate the next time, he's not at 100%, you know, because old-school 80s baseball, like, sort of resembled a rugby match sometime, you know, or like a prison fight. <laughs> if you, dude, if you watch a Helmer Cray slide, like, that's some, that's some prison fight shit, man. Serious, serious stuff. So that's sort of the goal of that, you know. It's uh, pure intimidation at that point. Um, hold on, I had another drill too, right? So, I, I, for sure, an MLB combine in 1986 would have to have the bow tie drill. Now, if you don't know what the bow tie is, here's here's how I learned what the, the bow tie is the best pitch in baseball, and here's how I know. So, I was watching an Astros game like three or four years ago, and they had Nolan Ryan in the booth, and he's there with the guys. The guys that call the Astros game, it's um Harry Callis's son, which I don't know his name, but you can tell it's Harry the K's son because he's got a voice sort of like him. And then I don't know who the other guy is. And then uh, Nolan Ryan's in the booth. So they're cutting up in the booth. And Nolan tells this story about having, uh, about hanging out with Satchel Page one time. And Nolan goes, listen, so Nolan said that Satchel asked him one time, he goes, hey, Nolan, you know what the best pitch in baseball is? And Nolan, I mean, being Nolan Ryan, he goes, well, yeah, Satchel the fastball. And Satchel goes, no, that ain't the best pitch in baseball. The best pitch in baseball is the bow tie. Like a bow tie that you wear. Like like a bow tie that Ken Rosenthal wears. But Nolan's confused. He's like, what the hell is a bow tie? And he goes, it's where you throw the pitch right here. And Satchel Page takes his hand and runs it across his throat like he's doing like the cutthroat, you know, the cutthroat sign or whatever. And he goes, that's where you put the pitch right there underneath the chin. And Nolan's like, holy shit, man. And that's what a bow tie is. So a bow tie is the ultimate knockdown pitch where if you're a pitcher and you want to intimidate a hitter, you give him the bow tie. You know, David Cohn, <laughs> when David Cohn was with the Mets, he got in trouble for the bow tie once. So it was the Mets playing the Dodgers. And Pedro Guerrero is in the box for the Dodgers. And David Cohn threw him like two or three bow ties in a row. And Pedro Guerrero got pissed. Comes out of the box. I think he launched his baseball bat at David Cohn at some point. And David's on the mound like acting dumb. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, he knew exactly what he was doing. But it was pretty impressive. Because Pedro Guerrero looks like he's like 6'4", 265 or something like that. And David Cohn looks like your paper boy. He's like 5'10", like 150. And David didn't back down, man. He was a fucking pit bull of a pitcher for sure. And uh, so the bow tie can get you in trouble if you're not ready for it. So if you've got a combine in 1986, you have to have the bow tie drill. And here's how I imagine the bow, tri the bow tie drill would look. 
you put a rookie prospect in the batter's box, and then you got your rookie prospect pitching. And he's just going to throw them bow ties over and over again. But then he's also going to mix it up and throw a fastball in the ribs, you know, happy Gilmore style. Because our hitters got to be able to take a hit, and our pitchers have to throw a pop- proper bow tie. But somewhere in the mix, we're going to have Bobby Gritch charge the mound and fight the pitcher. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we also got to teach our pitchers to fight if they're going to throw a proper bow tie in Bobby Gritch is the guy to do it. You know what I mean? So we might even have George Scott come into play too. You know, you ever watch the fight where, holy shit, if you, I think it's on my Instagram somewhere. Um, I think I posted it last year, but George Scott, if you don't know who George Scott is, he's this badass dude. He was a Boston Red Sox and a Milwaukee Brewer, an excellent baseball player. And he was a first baseman. And at this point in his career, uh, I think he was, I think he was on the Brewers, but he might have been on the Red Sox, George Scott. I don't remember. And a very young Dennis Martinez is pitching for the Baltimore Orioles. And George Scott's a big dude. And George Scott wore a necklace with like shark teeth or some shit on it. And a reporter asked George Scott one time, he goes, hey, George, what's your necklace made out of? And George answers, it's made out of second baseman's teeth. <laughs> so that's why you got to be able to take out a second baseman. And I'm just like, holy shit. And if you look at George Scott, he's big and intimidating, man. When he was a Red Sox, Don Zimmer was his manager. Dude, and those guys were some badass dudes over there. So um, Dennis Martinez hits George Scott. Now, earlier I described Bobby Gritch fighting all of the Minnesota Twins one time. Well, George Scott runs out after... Dennis Martinez, El Presidente, and Dennis Martinez is so scared, he fucking runs from him, and George Scott is chasing Dennis Martinez around the infield, and everybody is trying to hold back George Scott, Red Sox, and even guys from the other team, no one cares about Pedro, no one cares about Dennis Martinez, no one's even trying to help him, everyone on both teams is going for George Scott because they know George Scott is a badass. And if he gets a hold of Dennis Martinez, yo, he may never throw the perfect game that he threw when he was with the Montreal Expos. Like it would have altered his career forever because George wanted blood, man. Like George was in the zone, like Riggs on lethal weapon one when he's fighting Mr. Joshua. Like it was just badass, dude. And, uh, I mean, it was a wild dude. So I think we could have definitely in our 1986 MLB combine. If Bobby Gritch gets a little tired from throwing haymakers, we could just have George Scott come in and just literally terrify everybody. Like bring in some adult diapers because some of these rookies are going to be shitting their pants, man. And that's it, man. That's my take on, I think, what an MLB combine would look like. You know, Um, I think the supplementation would be, you know, to add in to the combine, I think, you know, players would have to get acclimated to, you know, smoking cigarettes. So I think because um, in the 2021 combine, all the athletes, they get jerseys. Well, in 1986, you know, I don't think, you know, the rookie prospects would be getting jerseys. I think they would be getting complimentary uh, packs of merits and um, Parliament cigarettes, so merits and parliaments. So we would hand packs of cigarettes out to all the prospects. Um, red man pouches, for sure. Definitely hand out red man pouches. Um, probably, you know, have a setup, you know, like in the 2021 combine, it was probably sponsored by like Powerade or something. So they probably had like Powerade stations, you know. But in at the 1986 combine, there would be like, 
coffee and greenie stations. You know what I mean? Where you would have like crushed up coffee. I mean, excuse me, you would have crushed up greenies in Maxwell House and you would have those stationed all around the baseball field so you could, uh, you know, drink the coffee with the greenies. You know what I mean? Because we don't need to rehydrate with like Gatorade or Powerade or fucking water for that matter. You know what I mean? So like there would definitely be Maxwell House greenie stations, I think, around for sure. But that's it. That's my take on what a combine would look like in 1986. All right, that's it. I guess we ought to wrap it up. I'm at like the hour mark, so I think that's probably a decent show. Thanks for listening to it. I hope it was decent. I hope it was good. With the new year and stuff like that, I sort of want to try to do this podcast at least bi-weekly. I haven't, I mean, this is the first I've uploaded since I think like November 10th, and I've sort of just been hanging out with my wife and kid. You know, my, my wife's like seven months pregnant, so she's due with our son in March. So I've kind of just been hanging out with the family. You know, the holidays were busy and stuff like that. I hope you guys had a great Christmas and New Year. And um, thanks again for listening to the show. Like, it, it means a lot that you took the time to listen to uh, an hour-long episode of me just talking. <laughs> um, and otherwise, well, heck, that's it. I guess I'll catch you guys next time. Thanks again. Have a phenomenal week. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be back on with a new podcast in a couple weeks. Right on. All right. Take care, everybody. See you.